Hello and welcome once again to Core Ideas, a paleo-limnology podcast where we delve into all things like sediments. As always, we are your hosts, myself, Adam Jezorski. And Josh Steenpont. Thanks for coming back again. All right. So here we are talking again in ARC 3, Contagious Ideas. What do you want to talk about today, Josh? Well, I don't know. What have you been up to over the uh, lockdown, which is now stretched for well, some weeks, several weeks? Uh, have you been doing any writing, Adam? Have you been putting any words to paper? I have been putting some words on paper in between bouts of crying. But um, <laughs> yes, yes, I've been trying to uh, move a paper off. You know, it's been a working project for a while. And now with limited access to the lab, it's kind of been a time to clear out the backlog a little bit. And yeah, so I've... I think I think that's probably the... I think that's probably the case for a bunch of people. I have, uh, I submitted one paper early on in the quarantine just before, and one that I've been working on for five or six years. Uh, and, uh, so a long time that I've been putting off, uh, which felt really good. And since then more towards the like last couple of weeks, I've had, uh, you know, I've read some drafts of papers that have now been submitted. I've gotten, uh, you know, draft red draft for papers. I've read drafts some time ago have now been submitted that didn't need any further comments. So it seems like at least from my little anecdotal, uh, scrolling through my recent emails that you wouldn't, uh, and I wouldn't be the only pe- people who are working on writing. So I think that would be a cool topic to spend a little bit of time on today. Yeah, and it definitely falls within this arc of contagious ideas because really you want the ideas that you express in your papers to be well-read. We talked about citations last time. Um, and, you know, if nobody reads what you're writing, it's like a you know a tree falling in the forest with no one to hear it, basically. Like, what is the point? Yeah, and if you don't ever write it, then you can't start publicizing it in the media and never will get those citations. It really has to be the first step. Uh, and doing it uh, well is uh, something that uh, takes practice. And some of the people listening, uh, probably the people we'll be talking to primarily today, uh, are possibly writing their papers for the first time or um, working on on the early stages of kind of writing in this scientific way and we're talking about published uh, published papers uh, and that's a that's a weird process yeah it's very much a learned skill and one that often comes up in conversation where you're talking about you know undergraduate education learning to become a scientist um there's not very much emphasis or teaching or at least in my experience through my undergrad on how to write a paper you do a couple of lab reports but um, you know, it's one of those things of, you know, one and done, you know, you, you answer the questions, whatever, fire it off, one draft, you know, theoretically you may proofread, but probably didn't. And so the, jumping from that straight into it, the thesis uses often seems to be quite difficult, where it's like, no, it's not going to be perfect on the first go. You're going to read this, and then someone else is going to read it, and then you're going to read it again and again and again and again, and you're going to you're going to polish it for quite a while. And uh, it's yeah. a novel experience for 
pretty much everyone that uh, um, I have um, had any uh, experience with working on it for the first time. And it was definitely that way for myself. Yeah, it's a hard skill to, to teach. Uh, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that in my classes, uh, I probably get the students to read more papers. And I think I, I do an okay job of emphasizing how to read the literature and how to access it and what the different sections are and what you would put into there. But it's really challenging and it takes a lot of time uh, to teach them how to write uh, in that style. And I found when I've tried to do it, that uh, it, it's really challenging when you're not writing uh, information or data that you're really familiar with. Uh, and that might be why at the undergraduate thesis level, or if you don't uh, do one of those projects at the master's level, that's where you really get uh, your first strong taste of what it is to write scientifically, because you're really intimately familiar with the material that you're writing about, because it is your data. And then also, yeah, yes, so like, it's difficult when you're trying to formulate the ideas. And usually sometimes in the, in a first draft, you're trying to really convince yourself before you convince anyone else of like what the flow of ideas should be. Um, yeah, maybe not even the first draft. It might, it might take a couple of drafts to really hammer out the, the order of what goes where. And then just the merciless nature of word counts in terms of being as succinct as possible. And, throwing out the Florian language and just getting straight down to the cat sat on the mat versus, you know, the robust feline, you know, rested <laughs> leisurely upon the wicker cushion upon the mat. Yeah. That, that if, uh, if there was one comment that I would, I mean, why, why don't uh, mark up papers by hand anymore, but that I would put on a stamp, to work with uh, new students, it would be too colloquial. <laughs> Bang, stamp that on there because that's really, uh, you know, people want to write sentences uh, that are interesting to read because you read books and, you know, the whole point of writing good literature is to describe things and to use interesting words. But that's not how science works. It's really about saying it as succinctly and concisely as possible. And it's often really repetitive uh, in order to do that in the, in, the way that you sort of we've assigned we've decided that science should be published yeah that's interesting but that's not bad no. i mean that makes it easy to access the information like there is a reason it's not about the words it's about the information that's in there yeah so yeah so yeah often when you're writing a manuscript for the first time you've never really written anything like it before um like just the scale of not polish. I don't know what the word. I'm struggling for the word here. But there's a difference between writing a term paper that will be read by your supervisor and nobody else um, versus writing something that you want the general to be available to the general public theoretically. But it's going to have your supervisor write. It's going to have multiple anonymous reviewers that can be absolutely merciless on it. Uh, reading it, you're going to have to convince editors that it's worthwhile. Um, and there's a whole bunch of steps and. Um, it is definitely a novel experience. It is, at least I, um, definitely thought it was incredibly difficult the first time I went through. I, def I struggled oh, yeah. a lot. Um, and for, um, those, you know, working through this process during the lockdown where yes, you've got lots of time to focus, um, 
maybe we can offer a little bit of moral support and commiseration and maybe even some advice as if as you work your way through this. Yeah, I I would go on record as saying I don't actually like writing papers that much. <laughs> it's not my favorite part of uh, of the job of science. Um, I like seeing the papers published. I like getting to the end of the process, but the actual sitting down and trying to decide how to take this Excel sheet or these figures or whatever they are and put them into a publication is not my favorite part. And, and I think, uh, if that's how you feel about it, that's okay. You'll, you know, get better at it, even though you may not uh, find it the most rewarding part of, of the job. But in the end, when it is published and it gets out there, even if you didn't enjoy the process as much as perhaps some people who are really great writers, uh, it, it's very satisfying in the end. So uh, I think we can definitely provide that moral support, I hope. Yeah. Anyway. And so I'm slightly different. I do actually enjoy the writing process. I would not, you know, definitely don't fall into the great writers uh, element. Um, and maybe not the initial writing, working from a blank page is very difficult, but I guess the revision process where you're dealing with some feedback from co-authors or whatever, or, you know, or if I'm, not the primary author, I'm a co-author for somebody else. And that kind of doing passes on on a, a paper in progress actually is one of my favorite parts of the job. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there are that's the other thing is that there are so many different steps that go into producing a paper. Uh I I think you can find even if you don't love all of the the parts, there are going to be uh, sections that you you might like more. And you, if you can hone in on those and, and put your energy into those and then make it through the other ones, then uh, in the end, you still get around to uh, where you need to be in the end. And that is coming up with something to be submitted and then finally published. Uh, and, and the other thing, I guess, uh, maybe just to uh, tie into what Adam just said a second ago, we're talking about uh, co-authors. One of the other things to keep in mind, and we can talk about this uh, in a in a minute, is that writing a paper, unless it's just you, you're the sole author, is a collaborative process with the other authors on the paper. Uh, obviously, as the lead author, we're assuming we're we're probably talking to the the grad students who want to be the lead authors on their paper and will be. Um, you're going to do the bulk of the work, but you can lean pretty heavily on different members of your team uh, at different points, depending on their strengths and how much they're going to be contributing to that paper in order to do some of those sections that you may not be familiar with, you may not have the experience in, or you may need some help in in that area. And because of that, your team can have strengths in some parts versus others and, and get the job done more efficiently. Yeah. Cause um, I have definitely never been the sole author on anything yet. Have you? I know. No, me neither. I, I, I'm not sure. I would have to think about it, but I would bet the shortest author list I have is five. Oh, yeah, of papers I've written. Okay, I've I've got a couple that are um, myself and my supervisor. So uh, for my master's and for my PhD, like, but the vast majority of my publication record is um, several more than that. And then I've been on a couple of ones where the um, author list is in the double digits, um, and yeah. those are a different beast as well that we can talk about a little bit as we move on starting at the beginning i guess we can spend a little time on what exactly constitutes a paper or an article or how do you know when you've got enough 
Yeah, that I I don't know that I uh, have a good answer for for that. I think that really can that's something you just have to uh, maybe you have to step back. You have to think about the data a little bit more broadly. You need to. I often like to draw up some figures so you can see what the visualization of the the data. Assuming we're not talking about reviews or anything like that, and uh, and and think about other papers that you've read and what constitutes a good story about the data. Because in the end, even though it's not fiction, it's not literature, you are trying to tell some sort of story about what uh, the question you were asking was. Uh, did you answer that? Did the findings come out to be what you expected or what might be expected based on the literature? If not, why not? It was because you didn't do enough work. If that's the answer, then maybe you need to go and do more. If it's because, you know, maybe you didn't understand the system as well, and now you do, then that's a good story too. And, and I think that's where I would probably start. Yeah. So a lot of the times from a graduate student point of view, um, this is going to be planned in many ways, you know, through your proposal, you know, if you're in a PhD, you'll have a couple of chapters set up where you'll have a general outline of what the planned papers will be. Where this kind of comes up a little bit more is if, you know, really you're, um, a curveball comes your way, or there's like a spin-off potential project, and say, like, "Oh, would this fit into one of the planned papers, or is it enough to stand on its own?" And you get into that whole idea of splitting up data sets. Um, there's a kind of a pejorative term that you may sometimes run into, like a least publishable unit. You know, like where <laughs> you're trying to maximize your paper count, um, which is a I guess a career strategy in some way. Um, to, to some extent, but I, I think I would just jump in and say that can make for very challenging papers to write and really challenging reviews to uh, to deal with because some people will hone in on the you know the sniff test of the there might be trying to pull out another paper of this. So I, I would uh, I would uh, hesitate to suggest trimming your paper down to the very smallest amount that you can get. Oh, no, I'm not suggesting, but I'm saying it is. That no, thing? no, I know. But I mean, <clears throat> the the tendency, because yeah, more papers is is often thought to be better. Uh, but better papers are also better too. So it really is a challenge. And and it's going to completely depend on, on what you've been doing. Yeah. And so I think often the actual process for me, um, basically, you know, you think of what is the narrative of the paper, because it'll be a beginning, a middle, and end to the story that you're trying to tell. There's, you know, this data, the stats to build your arguments. Um, but really, I often think of a paper in a narrative way. Um, and the first process is often uh, data and figures, and trying to get a flow of figures of what is the story. Here's a very, you know, if we're doing a paleo one, you're going to begin with. There's always not always, but the general flow will be a map of where you're talking about, some sort of dating stuff to you know, uh, provide some information that the core that was taken was good and makes sense into your actual proxy data, into... Um, analysis, analysis, data, analysis figures. And that would be a very general paleo flow. Um, and then once you start getting those, then there's some trimming of what what will and will not be included in terms of... Uh, those analyses. Um, and really, it's 
it's kind of funny um, that we're talking about when to begin the writing process. Often in graduate study, you always get hammered in. Um, you can start working on intro methods on day one, really. You know, you're doing your lit <laughs> review as you get your. Uh, um, I've said that before. <laughs> I, I, I've heard it. I've never actually really advocated it that much. But um, you always hear it as you can start writing today because you don't need any data to work on your introduction and your methods. But really, I find it very difficult to do anything like that once you actually have your figure flow and your data and your story. And yes, there may be some rough notes somewhere, but you're not writing your actual, or at least I'm never writing in the article form like two or three months before the, the data has been analyzed. Yeah. Like if I look back on some of my papers that are tied to like my uh, PhD um, proposal, there are sentences I bet you that I wrote and I lifted from my PhD proposal and put into the paper. So the ideas are being written down, but in the exact same format, probably not going to be written months and months before you actually get around to writing the paper though getting the ideas down and starting to put down the points that you want uh especially in the introduction because if you do want a narrative you you know you want to follow through with that story and, and have in mind what the objectives the hypothesis however you frame your your study are uh, that's valuable writing the actual sentences is, is probably less important at least in my mind so really, in terms of when to begin, there is no real answer, but uh, it depends. But uh, yeah, young graduates out there, be prepared to hear, start super, super, super early and yeah. know that uh, it's one. It's very similar to, uh, you know, in elementary and high school when you're, you know, final year independent study projects are uh, given on like week day one or day two of a particular class and you have the whole semester to yep. work on it but well that's that's slightly different because <laughs> a tiny fraction of people those. do uh and it's it's very much i'm sure a scenario of uh do as i say not say as i do because the the person telling you that very likely didn't take that advice but uh, i i would wishes they did yeah exactly i would say that it is uh it is valuable to think about the writing process throughout the entire part of the data collection, the data analysis. If you're just collecting tons of data and then you're analyzing and plotting and carrying out ordinations and doing all these kind of complex statistics, just to do those analyses without any idea of how it links to the questions you're asking, the hypothesis you're testing... Uh, then you can really go far afield of where you need to be. And you could be spending weeks and weeks doing things that you may not actually need to do or want to do. So think about the writing process and think about what the paper will look like, the storyboard of it, if you are you know, a visual person. That's really valuable. So starting the writing process mentally at the beginning of the project, I think, has great value maybe don't write the actual methods down. Yeah, so in the process, I think through all this and with all students I provide any mentorship kind of uh, to, I think a maxim that I'm always saying is words on paper. Words on paper are what counts because you can spend a lot of time feeling that you need to prepare more or read more or increase your background knowledge before you write it. And it can run into a bit of a endless loop of reading as a procrastination because you do not feel, what's, um, or escapes me, prepared enough or knowledgeable enough to write 
about the topic meaningfully, but um, uh, in the um, prep for this episode, we're looking up writing quotes and Josh found one that I thought was absolutely great uh, from Ernest Hemingway. And basically the first draft of anything is shit. Yeah. And that is true. That is absolutely true. Um, but it counts. And, and then you, you can start polishing that turd. You, you can, it is infinitely easier and to progress faster editing. If you've got something to work with rather than looking at a blank page. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, don't worry about the grammar. Don't worry about, uh, you know, it has to be read, uh, legible and readable. But beyond that, it doesn't really need to be much more than a string of ideas. Uh, you may not, you know, this may not be what you ha- hand off to someone. This is just what you see and it gets your ideas uh, on the table. And if you get to a point where you're at a, a block and you don't know where to go from there, especially if you're early on in your uh, writing career, there may be no value in producing a beautiful document because the person reading it might be like, yeah, this is, this is really well written, but the ideas are in the wrong order. This doesn't make sense. This isn't what is related to these kind of data. So no, this is all, this all has to change. Like even if the draft that you send to a supervisor or a mentor or whatever, uh, even if what they say is no, this isn't what we, where we need to go. That's something you've learned from that draft. So any words on paper or screen uh, are the critical step because you can always revise. Absolutely. And yeah. I would actually just, uh, sorry, to to say that that's a real uh, good point, I think, about reading as a procrastination tool. I would suspect that as you go further and further into uh, people who are more senior have written more and more. They do less and less and less reading in the preparation. Now, partly that's because they know some of that material in the back of their mind. They have that in their memory bank and they know how to write that. But there are many times I just write a sentence, but reference and it's like, I'll figure that out eventually. I know that that's true. I'm not going to spend today finding the perfect paper for that. When I'm in a good writing place, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to blast through and I'll come back to that later. Yeah. And so I think um, when we when you talk about your two colloquial uh, stamp that you could put in, it's like in the early stages of writing, a very common one in any of my stuff. If you're in like the stream of consciousness, just getting the ideas, the flow, this is discussion, we'll eventually mold this into paragraphs. Really common one for me is ref question mark. Yeah. You know, and so that, deal with that later. It may be wrong. I may not be able to find a reference to support that, but that's what I'm putting in now and we'll deal with it later. But we're keeping on on the idea of vomit and uh, yep. making, you know, the initial the initial shape, and not everything will stay in. And I'm not going to waste a couple hours looking for a particular reference regarding to a particular variable and a particular continent or whatever to support it. If I'm not even sure that is going to stay, yeah, in. couldn't agree more. I guess the the thing going on from that is to say that uh, the whole point of this axiom or, or whatever refrain of words on paper is that it's really hard to start writing. Uh, and that's why some people will spend so much time reading because uh, partly, you know, they want to have that information, but partly they're just not really sure how to start. Um, and a lot of that, I think, comes from the fact that they just don't feel like they really are uh, qualified to write papers on this topic. But that's absolutely not the case. 
uh, anyone, whether they're an undergraduate student who's just starting towards the end of your PhD, someone who's been a professor, full professor for 20 years, uh, on the topic you're reading and writing about, you really are the expert on that topic. So don't be afraid to explore that uh, topic and to write about that topic because we really want to hear what it is. The rest of the community wants to hear what it is you have to say on that and how it contributes to science in general. Yeah, and, and that's always a tough thing I find for people to wrap their head around, the whole idea that you are the foremost leading expert in the entire planet when it comes to your data. Yes, there are other experts that will know um, a lot more about the topic in general, but when it comes to your actual data set, none of them will have looked at it yet. Your supervisor may have a good idea of what it isn't a big picture, but in terms of the actual data analysis and all the permutations of data analysis that don't make it into drafts that end up on their desk, they never see. So there's an element of not confidence that... Um, well, it's a bit of a, it's like a part of imposter syndrome. You know, it, it, it's the same as everyone yeah. else. On, and everyone has a little bit of that. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, um, you know, there are certain, certain questions that the only, you know, no one can answer other than you. And that's an important thing to keep in mind, I think. Absolutely. And you can ask for help and then that will, you know, will, if, if you need help with the data analysis, then that's someone on a random level. But um, it's one of those speak up things and know your data because no one, especially in the graduate student level, is going to spend the hours and hours and hours in the compiling and the data. You know, the, there's an intimacy that you have over time with knowing or remembering what the lakes look like and all this kind of stuff that gets lost when it just becomes like numbers in a spreadsheet that may have value as you go through the data analysis and the writing process. Yeah. Of course, someone who has 20 years of experience as a, a, a scientist is going to know the body of literature better and something about the techniques a little bit better, uh, but not the specifics of, of that particular paper. Uh, and just because you don't know absolutely everything about a subject doesn't mean you're not qualified to write about that subject. I mean, Adam and I don't know everything about paleolimnology and we have this podcast. Virtually yeah, nothing. Virtually, really. And yet we decided we were, you know, had the gall to start a paleolimnology podcast <laughs> But we're going to learn things. We have learned things, I would say, along the way. Uh, and that's not unlike the writing process. You know, you just have to start and uh, and you'll be okay. You'll you'll get that paper done and you'll, you will learn things along the way. And then other people will learn things at the same time. Uh, I don't think we will go and dive into like the specifics of those sections of a paper. That's far too uh, undergraduate, you know, like that's far too uh, trivial. Uh, of an idea. So maybe we should um, move on a little bit to assume that, you know, you, you've finished your paper and and one of the real, I don't know, really hard parts, I think, uh, for people who are new to writing in a scientific sense is going through the peer review process. And, and uh, I wouldn't even say new it in a scientific sense. I find it a hard part too. Um, because you get this thing that you really, really are attached to, you really, you know, think is really good, especially when you've submitted it to a journal. And then you get the reviews back. And uh, 
and it it might turn out that someone who read it didn't agree with you on that topic. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think even before we get into that, it's just like talking about criticism in general yeah. can be a bit. That's tough. a good point. Um, so I think a really key thing to keep in mind is, especially at the beginning, um, on a first paper, uh, I'm working with a student. Um, and I remember feeling this a bit myself, uh, way back when, but you get drafts back and their comments and there's lots of comments and you're like, I've worked really hard on that. And you, you know, you, you're, you're back, you know, your defensiveness kicks in. It's like, and it's like a key thing to keep in mind is that your co-authors, so your supervisor and whoever else that is an author on the paper, they are on your team. And so it's not tearing you down. It's building it up and making it yep. better. Where that, and you'll go through this over a couple of drafts and make it, you know, to the point where everyone is happy with it and ready to um, uh, send it to the journal and where it will go out to a review. The reviewers are not on your team. They should be. Uh, often they should be, but, but not, not in the same way. Not in the same way. They're like, on science's team. Um, <laughs> they're on science's team. Like, whereas, and it can be uh, shocking sometimes, but the whole anon- anonymity of it all in terms of, I guess I'm, when I said not on your team, a lot, a lot of the times, um, you know, they're not coaching comments in a pep yeah. talk uh, very often. It's just the straight goods, you know, I do not like this because da 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 da, or this is incorrect, and that can be a very shocking um, part of the part of the process the first time through. If you get a particularly snarky or hostile review, yeah, they're often on their own team, which is a, a big problem. And uh, and I, I would argue at any, or I would say, and it's my opinion, that at any point in the writing process, whether it's getting comments from your co-authors, getting comments from reviewers, whatever it is, you shouldn't be unwilling to change any sentence or any part of your paper if there's good reason to do so. So you shouldn't become so attached to a sentence or an analysis or a figure or anything in the paper uh, to the point where you won't change it if presented with a good reason to do that. Now, that's the key point is assessing what is a good reason. If your co-authors say, you know, I think this analysis should be changed or whatever. This is why it'll do it, make it a better paper. Absolutely. Throw that si- sentence out, make that new figure. Even if it takes you, even if the first one took you weeks, don't be so attached to it that you won't change it. The problem becomes uh, at sometimes when it's not actually going to improve the paper or it's not scientifically a good reason to make that, uh, that change. And sometimes reviewers, you know, are in their own, I wouldn't say camp or uh, on their own team, but they may not, uh, you know, there, there may be other reasons that they, they make some comments and, uh, and there are reasons why you might just say, no, I, I don't think that that's actually an improvement for the science. Yeah. And sometimes it's simply not practical. Like, and it's, you know, you will get the odd comment where it's like, yes, that would be very helpful but it would take me 10 years to do. Oh, yeah, or I'd sure. have to go back to the site and get another core and like, because we have no more sediment. And so you end up with like the dance of um, here is the paper. Here are the comments the reviewer thinks it needs to be done to be ra- raised up to the level of um, 
of being published in the journal. Uh, and then you look at the list and say, oh, some of them are grammatical. They're easy. Some of them are um, uh, conceptual you know, wording changes. Uh, and then some of them are like absolutely fundamental that, you know, it's like the baby's going out with the bathwater sometimes. Yeah. And it requires, and, or, or in cases impossible. And um, yeah. And that is where your supervisor comes in, especially in the early days of uh, having your back a little bit to let you navigate that whole what is and is not doable. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing I hate more than the, oh, you should have more samples in this analysis kind of comments. Like, uh, I would love to, uh, but these samples cost $10,000 a piece. <laughs> so, no, <laughs> we're not going back. I can't get my time machine fired up and go back in time and take them at the time these samples were, you know, collected. Uh, so that's not. Or it'd be very useful if the record extended back another 50, 60 years. Like, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, that would be really useful, wouldn't it? Some more position on your basal yeah. date. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so some of those things are easy to argue. And, and I think most editors at the journal who should be the, you know, they're the referee between the uh, referee and the uh, author, the reviewers and the authors. Uh, to, to say, no, that's a silly comment that, yeah, of course we would all love that, but that's not going to happen. Here are the ones that are actually going to improve the quality of the manuscript. And I actually really hate journals that, uh, ask the reviewers to make a comment on whether the paper is suitable for publication in that journal, whether it's of high enough, you know, uh, general interest or it's high enough impact in air quotations. i very much dislike being asked that for as a reviewer i'll always say yes it's high enough because that's up to the i think that's up to the editor to decide that oh i totally agree i don't know if i've ever actually said no no but people do um, all the time other reviewers do all the time uh, yeah no i realize that but i mean uh myself is you know like especially like bring this right to paleo limnology it's a multidisciplinary science. Um, and I think it's pretty tough unless, I don't know, maybe it's a relic of, you know, the world of PDFs rather than reading full issues of journals cover to cover. Um, cause every single journal out there, I'm picking and choosing what articles oh, yeah. from it I read. So I have no, um, concept of, in any particular journal, what does and does not warrant being there. Especially when you get into journals that are more multidisciplinary than just paleolimnology. Like I might be able to read through a cover-to-cover -cover edition of the Journal of Paleolimnology and make some idea as to which article I think is more impactful or whatever, and I still wouldn't judge them that way. But if I'm going to read, and I'll call out global change biology as the one that does this all the time. <laughs> um, not a good journal, a great journal, great articles in there. But I would never be able to say of all the different sciences that are incorporated in that, which one is more impactful in the broad scale. Sometimes they may we may not know that for many years about the importance of a paper. And yet uh, that is very much something that often is uh, is pushed onto reviewers at other journals as well but that that's one that comes to mind um doesn't mean it's not great science but uh 
I, I don't feel like I'm qualified to make that, that, uh, decision. Uh, and, and I think that would be the same for other, you know, your paper being in some of those journals too. So it's a bit of a digression. No, it's a, that's a good one. I'd not thought of before. Cause I view it. I view that question in many ways because I don't feel qualified, but on the other hand, like you as a, so on the flip side of this process, which you've not really talked on, we've both been reviewers. Um, and, uh, you know, if the editor feels that I am someone that should be reviewing this article that has landed on their desk, I assume that they already were thinking about publishing it and it's very much up to them. So I, I view those questions in many ways of like, you know, the end user license agreements on uh, software. It's like, yeah. I will click yes because I want to use sure, the thing. Sure, fair enough. I'm like the... Yeah, and I, I do the same thing too. If I if it gets to me for review, I'm not going to spend time to review a paper that's not going to get published in that journal. What a waste of my time. Uh, of course I'm going to check that, but that is not always the case. There are many people who don't click that, and that's what I mean about reviewers being mean sometimes. And... Uh, um, so that, that's something you have to just harden, you know, put your armor on because that, that might be part of the process. Cause some comments are just not nice. Uh, a lot, most people, a lot of people are really trying to help and make the paper better and, uh, use their expertise to maybe point out things that you weren't aware of. Uh, but there are just mean people out there and, and that's part of the process. Maybe we won't dwell on that anymore, but yeah. No. Well, I can come back to it a little bit later, um, but uh, talking about pet peeves um, when we are reviews. But you may also have been that it's not that they're a mean person, but you may have triggered them in some way and put them in the less amicable, yeah. amicable um, uh, state of mind while they're reading. Yeah. It. It's a weird. It's a weird process. Like it's like trying to get. Uh, context and nuance out of text messages it's, sometimes it's just challenging to do that um so yeah you can give them a bit of grain of salt but some people are just mean <laughs> <laughs> and, and the process is interesting and we've got the uh um the the meme image that you sent of like how much that your paper can change through the review process with like the car illustration that will link where you know you submit your initial manuscript may look like a car, but by the end it may have many more wheels, a rocket launcher, an umbrella and stuff all hanging off. My favorite is the horse hitch on the front because in quotes, (laughs) that's how we've always done it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot. And then I guess, I don't know if we really want to go into this, but just there's also the dance of, you know, what is and is not a, um, review or comment, like which, which you will do like verbatim and which you will push back on. There's a little bit of an art of doing, you know, satisfying the comments. And, and sometimes some comments aren't, um, require a little bit of reading between the lines is like, they're not asking you to do X. It's more a reflection on what you've written. And so it's like, if you've overstated something, they might say, Oh, you know, do Y. It's like a response to what you've written so that you think you've written X, but you've actually written Y by overstating or making something global instead of regional or local or whatever. And so the comment would just be a quick, you know, oh, do you have the data to support this on a global level? It's like, no, that require, you know, 
87 more climate stations? Of course not. And so the answer is just the, the, the way to address that comment is not, the reviewer is not necessarily asking you to increase the scope of your study by several orders of magnitude. They're just asking you to change one word without writing out a paragraph on take that one word out because it's not actually satisfying. Yeah, just just tone it down just a little bit. Just couch those terms in may have or could have, those sorts of things, in order to take that out. And sometimes, and I do this a lot, like I in my reviews, I don't know if they would be challenging to to read, but I often just am asking questions sort of broadly, like kind of have you thought about this? I may not know the answer, um, but that's something that you might want to consider. I, you know, I know this little bit about this. Does this apply here? Uh, if so, you know, make that comment. If not, tell me that, no, that doesn't make any sense. But, you know, does this apply to that? So there, are, there is definitely an art to how you uh, incorporate reviewer comments. Uh, I, again, I would go back to the, you know, don't be so uh, attached to anything that you won't change it. But if you think it's right, then, you know, stick to your guns and and say so and uh, give a good reason why, because you should be able to defend it. And I think in, in all of my experience, because I tend to I maybe tend to push a little hard on on reviewer comments and not make changes that often, uh, you can often, you know, the editor will often agree with you if you have a good reason behind it. Because like sometimes that the addressing in the comment is you can address the comment. So the response is take those couple of sentences sure. out. Yeah, for sure. Which, you know, if, if there's a, something that was not necessarily supported and or to the extent that the reviewer felt it should be. And so, yeah, it becomes a bit of a mind bend when you realize, oh, they weren't, at, I can't do that. So address that by removing this one sentence. Yep. And then the final thing to keep in mind is, you know, again, you can, you can be intimidated by this anonymous person who has written certain things, but you are the expert on this topic. And if, uh, if you think that that's the case, then, you know, make the argument as to why, and, uh, that should be good enough. So, yeah, so I guess, um, the next, well, I guess we're not really following a real logical process here because you've got your paper. Another thing to think about is where do you send it? Yeah, that's a tough one. And um, it can be a very tough one. Like sometimes it's just, you know, a fairly easy uh, question uh, to address of like, it's a follow-up study to another paper. So yeah, it makes sense to send it to the journal of the first yeah. study. Or you'd, um, you'd have a nice core you know, from Lake Ontario. Like I'd go a journal of Great Lakes research on that one because yeah. you, it fits yeah. really well with the, the subject matter. But as we covered in our uh, um, journals and soci- uh, societies um, episode, there are lots and lots of journals out there. And there are lots of them. And then when you have paleo uh, involved, there are lots and lots of journals to choose from that have all kinds of tangential relationships to paleo. Like paleo papers can be found all over the place. Um, so that becomes one factor. But also um, one, something that we've not really taught before is how high do you aim uh, can be a, um, a process. If you have something that you think is really big or you and your supervisors think is uh, going to make a big splash, how high up the, um, what do you want to call it? The, pyramid? Uh, I don't know. The impact factor pyramid, I guess. Um, and do you go uh, in terms of uh, 
are you going to aim for like science or nature, for example, which are kind of the top in many ways. And, um, and there's a, a pro con to that, that whole process. definitely is. Term. Uh, and I don't have a good answer to that. Um, yeah. So if you were taking the impact factor and ranking them and putting the highest ones at the top, where there's the smallest number of papers. So I guess it's a pyramid that makes sense. Uh, yeah, because those papers often are very different in how they're written. Like the structure of them is quite different. So taking a paper that was, and they're harder to write because you have to squeeze everything into you know four pages. Um, the the effort that goes into those may not, you know, if they aren't successful at those, which most papers aren't, may not translate that well into another publication later on. You may have to write the whole thing again. So it is a bit of wasted effort, but the rewards can be really, really great. Uh, because they often get more media attention, they're better cited. Uh, they'll be picked up by the media uh, because you know you may they have press teams at some of these large journals. So I don't know that I have a real uh, answer, and and that's something that you have to decide on as your team and and a new master student or a or even a, you know PhD student well into their career um, may not recognize that these data and this uh, story is of that kind of broad interest, which is really what we're talking about. If it's a broad implication and important uh, results and, and may not think about sending it to one of those journals, whereas someone who's done it a bit more might uh, think, hey, you know, that, that could probably work there. Yeah. And yeah. And then that makes the process um, uh Fairly interesting. Those papers are very different. Um, and, you know, as you say, you get your rejection from there and then you move down the steps. You run into what we talked before about, um, you know, when you're writing a paper uh, for the first time, it might be uh, the first time you've ever worked on something that goes four, five, six drafts through. Um, when you're aiming for the top uh, of, of the pyramid, um, and then it doesn't make it, and then you go uh, to slowly lower down the pyramid, and it doesn't make it, and you go again. Then you're running into, you may be working on these things 20, 30 drafts down the road, because as you go from journal to journal, uh, there are some massive overhauls required. Yeah, and they often get longer, and that means there's going to be comments on on those sections that hadn't existed in earlier drafts. So of course there are going to be revisions uh, to be made there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's, it's uh, the potential for wasted effort is certainly there. Uh, and, and I would say like writing one of those is not easy. It's not something that you ever get a lot of practice at. I mean, it'd be nice if we all had tons of things like that. Very, very few people do. Like I think, uh, and they ag and I would say they agonize over those too because they really do come down to every sentence. So you could have a dozen papers under your uh, so-called belt, and um, and then be starting from scratch writing that first submission to science or or nature. So it's not something that you'll ever really practice, but it is something to think about. I guess a good question we could dwell on for a minute is when do you decide what journal you're going to. Uh, submit the data to and and how do you go about selecting that sort of tangential to that yeah um i you know i don't know I, this falls into i think often the trust your supervisor role of um role of things especially when you're new um because one thing that we've not touched on at all so far uh that becomes critically important uh when you're aiming very high 
is that the um, the uh, submission letter uh, becomes infinitely more important um, because you know when you submit something to the Journal of Paleoethnology, for example, like a specialized journal within a discipline, you know, you can have absolute certainty that the editor is familiar with paleolimnology. Yep. Um, if you're submitting a paper to uh, uh, Nature, uh, there is a good chance that the editor that will decide whether or not to move your paper along in the process is not very familiar with paleolimnology at all. Yeah. It could very well be someone, you know, it'll be within some sort of ecological um, sphere, but it could be someone on who's a world expert on bird migration patterns. So there's an element of a really important aspect to writing a letter. So the paper has to stand on its own, but then you have to have a really good um, uh, letter. submission yeah. letter, cover letter, um, articulating why this is a big deal. And then that becomes a um, separate, um, I guess. Four drafts, yeah. Yeah, but I, I wasn't thinking in terms of drafts. I was thinking in terms of uh, the style. It becomes a completely different style yeah. because and then, you know, it becomes a, a lot more about, you know, the nature of the cat and the mat involved, not just that it was sat upon. Yeah, for the because you're trying to trying to sell it. Yeah, so for that that paper I talked about at the beginning that I submitted this uh, a few weeks ago now, um, the cover letter of as I was on the submission thing, I'm like, oh yeah, crap, I forgot I didn't write a cover letter. <laughs> Ripped it out in the in the editor thing because it was going to a, a more discipline specific journal. The person was going to be familiar with this topic uh, in that thing. Uh, whereas that's not the case. If you, you'd be lucky if you get a geoscientist, you're probably going to get like an entomologist or something like that. Uh, who's reading that maybe completely off the grid, like a molecular biologist or who knows. So you really do need to, to put the effort into that as much as, you know, the first paragraph of the paper, because you, you might be out of the game before you've even started playing. Yep. And, you know, in many ways, it's like, um, suck applying to a job. You know, and the cover letter has to be tailored to uh, yep. the um, what you're trying to get. So, the elements of um, selling the virtues of a paper that you're submitting to one journal versus another um, will have to be tailored to the journal involved, and that is also important. And then I just wanted to bring that up just because the writing of those is often so different from the actual writing of the scientific article itself. Yeah. That's where you use the flowery language and, you know, all of your adjectives and that sort of thing, because that's where you really are trying to sell uh, a paper. Um, yeah, but that's a good point. Uh, it's often one that's not thought of. And then the other thing is that often is on that, if we're kind of going uh, on that process is identifying people who would be good reviewers. And that's something that people don't think about as much. Um, especially when you're starting, because you may not, you know, personally know, uh, some of the people in the field who might serve as good reviewers, but that's something you are always asked for is to identify five or, uh, so experts in the field who might be good, uh, reviewers of this paper. And, uh, and that, that's an important thing to, to think about as you're kind of getting towards the end of it. Uh, anything else that we want to talk about where I think we're probably getting close to the end of our, uh, our time on this one. Um, um, 
I guess maybe if there are any, I, this would be a good place to like drop a couple of kernels of wisdom from our advanced age okay. yep. of uh, smoothing things out. Or I guess a different way to look at it be our, um, you know, a couple of maybe not kernels of wisdom. How about pet peeves uh, from the process, viewing the process from the other angle. So as a reviewer, um, what are a couple things that would put you into angry reviewer mode? Terrible maps. Uh, I'm, ge- Terrible I'm a geographer now. Oh, so uh, I do those all the time. My maps suck and always will suck. Uh, and that's fine. It's just a dot. Yeah. Because uh, it's the first <laughs> figure. Adam's right. It's always figure one. So you see it right away. Um, just to point out, no, it's not always figure one. And so that would be one of my pet peeves of there not being a map. It's like, I, I do not know where the... Shalawala Bing Bang Peninsula is. Situate me, please. Sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you're going to include a map, do a good one. <laughs> um, oh, a, a big one that I'm not a huge fan of is uh, referring to things in supplementary information that uh, shouldn't be in. The, so supplementary information is like the stuff that gets put online, but I know the whole paper is online now these days, but... Uh, but that isn't part of the main document of the paper. So you can put anything in there. You can put videos, you can put data sets, you can put other analyses, whatever. Uh, putting too much in there makes it very challenging to read a paper. So if the paper's not complete in and of itself, I'm not probably going to open the supplementary information to find that. So that's one I, I yeah. love. I, I think, you know, in terms of the idea that very few people or no one will read the supplementary information is, you know... It, goes without saying. I think the vast majority of papers, when someone's looking at it, they will only read the abstract and only a subset of the people will move from the abstract to reading the paper in more detail. And you keep going through this. And then the supplementary information is at the absolute bottom of yeah. the list. I, so I would bet that a lot of the stuff that gets dumped into SI is things that reviewers uh, ask for that they didn't want to put into the main body of the paper. So they <laughs> put in the SI to uh, satisfy the reviewers. Uh, even though it didn't actually make it into the paper. So is that, what about you? Yeah. Um, I think uh, the big one, and this is not going to come up too often for um, someone just starting, but nothing makes me, puts me in a less generous mood than a paper that requires a careful reading of another paper Um and like, so we get into this whole um, potential uh, LPU situation, um, but we're just heavily referred to another paper. So for example, say it's a second study in a particular core, and then the only information about dating, which is absolutely critical in all paleo stuff, is uh, for dating information, see this other paper. Yeah. And you're like, what? And it's like, you know, because a lot of times, depending on where it went, if it, definitely if it's a, a smaller journal, the reviewer may not have access to that particular journal, which has definitely happened to me once before. And it's like, refer to this other page. And so at step one, how am I supposed to evaluate any of this paper when I have no idea what kind of confidence you have in the dates? And so that just, any kind of situation where it's like, before you read this paper, go read this paper for all these details to understand the following paper. It's one thing about general literature, but for key, key um, elements of the project, it's like, oh, Josh nods. You're going to have a hard. Vigorously. Yeah. 
This is not. This is not going to be a, uh, um, a a generous review at all. Because I'm, it's, you know, it's like figure one is the map. Figure two, uh, dating information. Uh, I'm already in a bad mood now. So I could care less how ugly the map is. Just let me know where the uh, where on the planet you are, um, and then beyond that. But uh, that 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 would be my absolute biggest one. Makes sense. It's a good one. I've definitely been yeah. I've definitely been evil reviewer too a couple times based on yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, uh, that's absolutely. that's fair. Especially if it's even if you have access to that journal, you don't have the paper in front of you right now. Like it, if I were to sitting at home here, which everyone is now, uh, to try and go and find a journal article takes a little bit of time. So I'm sitting yeah, here. Yeah. I have right now two hours to review this paper. <laughs> yeah, and I've got to down and do the you know, web proxy dance. So I have access through the university library yeah. as well. And these, it's like, you just it never works fast. Yeah. And you're just, just wasting my time and it makes the paper not stand alone. And if it can't stand on its own two feet, then it needs to go back to the drawing board. That'd be like my general. Yeah. The only exception sense. would be companion papers, which are published together in the same edition of a journal. That's different. They go through review together. Usually. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this was published two years ago by, you know, uh, a colleague of mine or even by me and all the information you need is over there. This is the new stuff. No. Yeah. Cool. So I think that's, that's not a bad place to, to wrap up. I think, um, I would hope that if you are out there listening and are in the middle of your writing journey, wherever that, that might be in your career or in a particular paper, uh, if you're feeling a little bit, you know, lost in that process, um, don't, don't be you too probably troubled. still are feeling lost. Yeah. No, that's that. And I think that, you know, this might be, I oh, it's not that rambly of a conversation compared to some of the ones we've had, but, uh, it, you know, it, it's an interesting process. It's one that everyone kind of develops their own style for. Uh, not everyone is gifted at it. In fact, the vast majority of people are not gifted at it from the get-go uh and you know you'll get there just keep plugging away at it words on paper uh get help from your team and uh don't forget that you are the expert on that subject and uh yeah and and know that you know the whole writer's block a little bit of anguish in the writing process is very, very normal um, and likely completely, stat, um, completely separate from the anguish you may, may feel when you're doing your stats for the first okay. time. But we can talk about that in another episode. But, uh, you know, just keep plugging away, get those words on paper, and there'll be light at the end of the tunnel eventually. Yeah, and seeing the paper in its paginated form is always good. Like, I never get tired of seeing galley proofs for papers yeah. because you know it's nice to see all that work come together uh and then maybe the last thing i was thinking of as you were saying that there um is that kind of you learn your own process um you know you might uh, i'm a morning person uh, so i do my best writing in the morning time if i start writing a paper at two in the afternoon it's not going to be very good so you know learn when you do your best work uh, as best as possible and, uh, and try and maximize your productivity to do the hard parts of writing a paper. Then you can go and fill out your literature uh, later on in the day. So, no, Definitely a good point. I'm not a morning person. 
Sounds good. All right. So there we go. Uh, another another stop on our uh, journey through some contagious ideas. Um, yeah, there was. If you want to, there was nothing in the Twitter uh, of note this week. Um, uh, I will have a route around in the mailbag. Nothing. No, we have no mail in the mailbag today. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> but if you do want to get in touch with us, um, the best place to start would be on Twitter. Uh, what's the Twitter handle again? At Core Ideas Paleo, P A L E O. The email uh, is Core Ideas Podcast at Gmail if you want to send us anything longer. And for you know links to all our past show notes um, and uh, past episodes, at, like the homing page is at coreideas.ajazorski.ca. Um, but honestly, the best way to get in touch with us is through Twitter, and you'll find our webpage linked on there as well. But a little shout out to the the website and the glossary is really coming along. Adam has been all of the website is obviously Adam, uh, but he's been filling out the glossary and it's becoming quite a good little resource actually. Well, to I'm fill glad out some did. definitions and that kind of thing. Yeah, no. I'm, over time, I'm trying to throw everything up there that is ever ever used as a tag on one of the episodes, and some of them are um, pretty specific and. We're starting to develop a little bit of a word cloud where we're uh, now, uh, what, 14 episodes in? No, 15 yep. episodes in? What number is this? Yep. 15 episodes in uh, where we're referring to the same general topics and tangential discussions. And so I thought, you know, it's worthwhile having something on there. I don't know who will ever use it, but it's out there. Go, yeah, go it's nuts. Good. It's there. And then I guess the last thing, just before we go, uh, 15 episodes in and... Uh, you know, we have some ideas for upcoming episodes, but uh, the list of things we started with, we're starting to tick off. So if you are still listening and have gotten this far and there's anything you uh, think might be a good episode you that has come up in previous things you want to hear a little more about, let us know. And uh, we'll definitely put that on the list or people we want you might want to hear us talk to, you know, really the sky's the limits. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, if not, then take care out there. Uh, and we will, we'll catch you soon. Yeah. Thanks for listening, listening, and we'll talk to you soon.